From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Friday Viper Podcast. And today we're talking about acquisitions. <laughs> and this acquisition is going to be Wilderness Trail. A Vinepair Next Wave Award winner for Brand of the Year last year. Yeah, Spirit of the Year. Yes, yeah, Spirit of the Year has just been acquired recently by Campari. And thought it'd be fun to have a conversation about this in just like the general idea of like, is anything going to slow bourbon down? Because this is what makes it so interesting to me. So first of all, Wilderness Trail is a great bourbon. Like it's a really great bourbon. There's lots of, you know, indie bourbons out there now. So it's not, it's not the only one, but you know, the taters like it. Geeks like it. People (laughs) love it because they put like the exact percentages of the mash bill on there and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's, it's good for the geeks. But I was a little surprised that Campari bought it just because I feel like it's so similar of a brand to Wild Turkey in terms of it's also loved by the taters that it was an interesting decision to me. They're going to pay upwards of $600 million for it. Oh, it's 420. Oh. When they buy the rest. Okay, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, it's 420 right now and if they buy the rest it'll be 600 and everyone knows they're going to buy. What are they going to do not buy the rest of it? Right, yeah. Um so they'll ultimately pay 600 million for it. And look, I, I will say, I think this is the smartest bourbon acquisition that has happened so far in the last few years. This is the smartest one because this brand has the potential to become on the cult level of a lot of Sazerac's brands. People are that obsessed with it. Yeah. And I'm surprised that other bigger companies didn't look at that and see that. Maybe they don't want to be that. Mm-hmm. But I, I it's this is a this was a very smart buy. Um but I think it just it's continuing to prove like, dude, I, I don't think anything's gonna slow bourbon down. What's surprising to me is that Campari Group doesn't have more bourbon in its portfolio. They're looking yes, to change that. That is true. <laughs> right. And they're looking to change that. In the in the announcement for this acquisition, they're like, We're looking to buy more bourbon, uh, more or less. So uh, you know, yep. keep an eye out for future moves. But we've been seeing this for a while now. Yeah. I think what was interesting about that, though, and Zach, you know, by bringing this up, this is an interesting point, is like a lot of these companies are realizing that like not only do they want to own more, they need to own more. And it's not a problem to own more. Like they're happy having multiple brands in the same liquid category. Mm -hmm. You know, like. Basically, most people have said that they're they're predicting that they don't think Diageo is done buying tequilas, right? Like it's the same thing as happening you know, with tequila too. Exactly. Right? Like yeah. th- these two categories right now, companies are basically like not done buying, right? And they want to have lots. And I think one of the biggest um, sort of companies that have proven that it doesn't you can you can look at probably three or four that have proven right. ABI has proven it doesn't matter how many beers you have, mm-hmm. right? There's beer for everyone. Diageo has proven it doesn't matter how many single malts you have, mm-hmm. right? They own so many of them because a lot of them going to be ingredients for Johnny Walker, but they own a ton. Beam Suntory has proven it doesn't matter how much whiskey you own, right? Right. And Gallo has proven it doesn't matter how many wine brands you own, right? They're actually, they're kind of competitive, but they're all, it also is kind of healthy. And so I think everyone else is sort of sitting here being like, yeah, like maybe we don't need to only put all of our funds into wild Turkey. Maybe we need to see what happens when we spread money around and also invest in wilderness trail and other things. Yeah. I think this one's smart because geeks really, truly love it. I think there've been others that recently have been blockbuster bourbon purchases that like 
honestly, I hadn't, you, you don't hear as much buzz about, especially from the, the true obsessives. For example, like Jefferson's, right? It's a good bourbon, but it was not beloved by bourbon people. Um, so when Pernod bought it, it was kind of like, okay, cool. Like kind of makes sense. Cause it's a good package, but it doesn't really like it's, I don't see it ever becoming a collector's bourbon. It's just, it's a decent bourbon, you know, and they do, and they, they, they do some, ocean. Ge- yeah, yeah, they, they do, do some their- geeky stuff. Um, but this one is like, wow, this is smart. This is really smart. But it does feel different to me than Wild Turkey. Like they're very different brands True. to me. True. Because this is very this is premium, right? We consider this super premium. It's hard to get. Like Wild Turkey feels very right. I accessible. Guess, I guess what I'm talking about with Wild Turkey isn't Wild Turkey. It's the other ranges that come out of Wild Turkey. Russell's uh right. like so all the Russell's stuff. I mean Russell's. Aaron Goldfarb is a like admitted avid collector of Russell's, mm-hmm. you know, and he writes obviously a lot about whiskey for us. Um, and it's talked about that a bunch that he loves Russell's and that to me feels like a geeky brand in line. So yeah, I guess that not, not wild Turkey one hundred and one, right. Right. But rare, rare breed is another one, you know, that's part of that wild Turkey universe that people love. Um, that also is very, very popular. Um, and, but I guess, I guess not as geeky as this. That's probably this the difference. Geeky. This is super like geeky. Like this has Dr. Pat Heist behind it. it. It's been like very hard to get always from the beginning. Yeah. You know, they they never cared, kind of. Right. So you got to think that they're going to ramp up. But the other thing that I thought was really interesting in this release, and I've seen other people tweet about, including another writer for us, Susanna, Susanna Skiver-Barton, is mm. what a lot of people don't know about Wilderness Trail or hadn't realized is – Almost 60% of their business prior to being bought by Campari was contracting for other bourbons. Mm-hmm. Right. They were selling liquid to other bourbons, selling barrels, et cetera, almost like being a mini MGP, yep. right? Like, And so there's a lot of brands that have their juice in their brand, and I wonder what's going to happen to those brands. Are we going to see a bunch of brands kind of disappear or whose quality goes down? Because there is no way, I believe, Campari allows we'll that business to that. stay. Yeah, yeah. You don't you don't invest a bunch of money into this business and then say, yeah, we don't care what happens to the majority of what comes off your stills. Like they're going to want all of that in bottles for for Wilderness Trail if they're looking to grow its production. Yeah, or say, hey, if you want to keep Wilderness Trail small. We want to take that 60% and create a third a brand. brand. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. I wonder here something that came up to mind when I was looking at this news, which is we've talked a lot about the the bourbon boom. And we talked about how, you know, mentioned in this conversation, how I do think Wilderness Trail is something of a different kind of acquisition than some of the other ones because it's such a new creation. I mean, I believe it's only a decade yeah. old. Um it's not even one of these sort of historic names that's been revitalized. It isn't anything. It's just yeah. it was a creation out of out of nothing, which is totally cool. But I do wonder if what we are also seeing in this is that what is still true is despite the way the laws read, Kentucky bourbon has a different cachet nationally and globally than other American bourbon. Yep. Because I would have a hard time believing that even if everything about Wilderness Trail were exactly the same – that its profile, either with taters or with the, you know, spirits business writ large, would be the same if it was located in Texas or Colorado or pick a place, Washington State. I think that we are seeing that, despite the fact that again the law says you can make bourbon anywhere in the United States, that from the marketplace standpoint and uh, at all levels, if you're not in Kentucky, maybe Tennessee, 
you don't really count when it comes to bourbon. I think you're 100% right. I, I think that this proves it. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the fact that I could, you could, like, think about it, right? What has happened to Hudson bourbon? Like, yeah, Hudson, was, Hudson, Hudson whiskey, whiskey company, right? Right. And they, they had the baby bourbon and like you bear, like when it was in, when it was a New York brand and they were like one of the first ones to prove that it could be, that bourbon could be made anywhere. Right. Like everyone knew it, but they were one of the first ones to be like, we're going to do it in upstate New York and it's going to be awesome. And it was all over New York city. It was, you know, varying levels of quality at the time because mm-hmm. it was really craft, but then, you know, it got bought really fast because it was everywhere, and I think, rightfully so, someone thought they could take it, but it's kind of not done much since. You know, right. I, I'll see some people write about it once in a while. I barely see it at all on back bars anymore, even in the city, and it's supposed to be a New York bourbon because this, I think, what Zach is talking about is really true. This, this connection we have to quality when it comes to – who bought them, by the way, did you? William Grant. William Grant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like this connection that we have to um, Kentucky, yeah, is just is just very very powerful. Well, and I think well, it, it also, seems like this was a very thoughtful purchase yeah. too. Like they picked this brand very intentionally. Yeah. Well, and it's also I think a sign that it's that the companies that have in a way waited have perhaps done mm-hmm. better. Waited to see where. The bourbon industry yep. is going because another example that I could speak to closer to home is uh, Woodenville whiskey here in Washington state, which was a pretty big sort of production craft distillery rather that was launched, uh, you know, probably over 10 years ago now. So probably similar time frame to uh, wilderness trail and got some acclaim locally. You know, they had some bourbon and uh, rye whiskey and, you know, there were a hot commodity locally for bars and stuff like that because it was a local product. They were bought by Moet Hennessy in 2017. I, I honestly, you know, I'm not, in some ways, super up on this, but I think by that point and, and shortly thereafter, they had sort of, I don't know if they'd fallen out of favor locally, but there was more competition. And in some ways, the affiliation with this, you know, multinational kind of hurt their local cachet. But I also don't think there's like a huge market for bourbon made in Washington state, like around the country to say nothing of around the world. And I think that this was one of those examples where you have a big multinational that looked at, oh, bourbon's on the rise. What, what, who is selling a lot of bourbon, who's growing fast, which they certainly were. Let's go in and buy this. And I think you're seeing a more mature bourbon market now. And you're seeing, again, as, we, as I just said, the primacy of Kentucky, where I think brands outside can succeed. You know, we've talked a lot about local craft spirits having a place, but that place is really mm-hmm. rooted in their home market. And Kentucky seems to be the only brand that you can take national or international because it's so connected with the history of bourbon and rightly so. And so the belief that a small craft distillery in Kentucky could become, or, you know, a medium sized one could become a big available around the world kind of brand is not hard for whiskey lovers, bourbon lovers to to stomach. Whereas a brand from anywhere else, I think it's just, it's a really hard sell and no one I think has done it successfully yet. I agree. I don't think anyone has. And this kind of proves it. I mean, I, I'm curious what we think, like, are there any other bourbons on either of your radars that are kind of independent that you think would be the next thing to get bought? Oh, man, I feel like this is more your area. Considering this, and we thought about Bardstown, and that was had already been bought yeah. like months before. Yeah, I mean, Bard, Bardstown is one for sure that, that was already that was already bought. Right. Um, In I a heard, similar way. That right? was It was private equity. 
Yeah. I think. So again, they could um they could turn around and flip it to somebody. But yeah, uh Pritzker Capital acquired it in March of 2022. But they were another one that was like growing very 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 fast and doing cool stuff. Yeah, and doing cool stuff and and also making you know, making all the different thing, you know, making the actual bourbon. So it wasn't just like, cause you know, I, I like barrel a lot, but I do worry that barrel's whole concept is like, they finished, they're buying juice already. Is yeah. that something that they can keep up with pin hook as well? I was going to say pin hook. You know, the, the only other one, um, the that, barrel is barrel craft spirits, right? Yes. Barrel yeah. craft spirits. And so that's their whole thing too, is like, is anyone going to be able to do that? The only other one that I could see that gets bought pretty quickly and was only founded in 2014 is New Riff. New yeah. Riff is another one that like we get a lot. It does really it well, does well in yeah. all the tastings. It's based in Kentucky. It's another one of these. A lot of the taters like it, but it's it's unique, right? Like how yep. they. And it was, and it started in 2014. Look, I'm sure if someone, if someone who's part of one of the larger alcohol beverage companies uh, is listening to this podcast and you're already talking to New Riff, like, let me know. <laughs> but I could see New Riff being another one that we hear about that, that has gotten purchased. You know, they're, they're big about on their site. They're really big about independence and that they're family owned and independent and blah, blah, blah. But like, again, they've only been around since 2014. That's, you know, basically what, you know, seven years now, eight years, like someone's going to make them an offer. Well, they do collab, they do collaborations. Like what is their, that's their thing, right? No, New Rift distills it all. They distill. You know, you're, I, I, like they do, they do do some stuff, but not in the same way. Okay. They, you know, they make lots of different whiskeys. They're making some gins now too. They make some riffs. Uh, so they do a bunch of different stuff. So like they'll do something like peated backseat Kentucky straight rye that's all bottled in bonds. So they do geeky stuff as well, but they do bourbon. You know, mm-hmm. like the thing is, their, their stuff is bourbon and their bourbon always does really well. Josh, you know, uh, loves their bourbon mm-hmm. um, and always says like he, it, it really punches above its weight, does really well. You, this It's young, right? It's like four year old bourbons that, right. that drink like they're much older. So I could see that. I could see that as well. And there's got to be others, you know, they're just sort of all kind of bubbling below the surface. But I do think what, um, what's, you know, the point that Zach, you made earlier is true. I, I think it's still going to be the bourbons that are going to always do the best in this American market and abroad is the, the ones based in Kentucky. Kentucky yeah. Well, and I wonder then if we will see more aspiring distillers, you know, people who want to launch a brand move to Kentucky and open there with people who, who do dream of, I don't know if they necessarily dream of making it big and selling, but at least getting recognition. I think we are seeing that it's kind of hard to get recognition for bourbon if you're not in Kentucky. And, you know, if you're someone who dreams of making great bourbon and you don't want to go work for an existing distillery, your only option might be to, to launch there. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's really true. And like, you know, Kentucky now has a whole craft trail for all these new upstart bourbons. Um, And I think that those are the ones that other people are going to start looking at and saying, okay, cool. You know, new riff is one of the ones that we know really well, but there's a lot of them now, you know, that are starting to, to come up like the Bard distillery and a a bunch of others that people are getting really uh, excited about and think are, are going to be sort of like the future. Mm -hmm. And yeah, this wilderness trail will not be the last, but we have wilderness trail in front of us. Yes. So, uh, we have the same one, right, Zach? Well, we have the different batch, different batch, small batch bourbon bottled in bond. Yeah. We have small batch, Kentucky straight bourbon, whiskey, bottle and bond. And we have batch number 16 E zero two. 
I have 17L01 for anyone who's tracking. Yeah. <laughs> and this is why the geeks love it because mm-hmm. you can go and look up the bash and see everything on the side. Mine says our the mash bill is 64% corn, 24% rye, and 12% malted barley. Malted barley, Copper pot distilled from a single fermented batch using sweet mash process and put in the barrel at 110 proof. And now it's 100 proof 100 in the proof, bottle. Yeah. yeah. It's good bourbon. Mm-hmm. It smells nice. I mean, you see why the it's it a nice bourbon. Good, yeah. It smells amazing. It's Fair. like not too high alcohol. Yeah, it's fairly smooth for bottle and bond. Yeah. No, it's really tasty. It has a burn, but but, but not, not too bad. Hot for no, 50, yeah. Not too hot for fifty percent. Mm-hmm. It has like that just really nice, like sweetness at the end, like mm-hmm. that vanilla and. Almost like cold, like vanilla, like vanilla Coke. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. I can see that. It's really good. I mean, this is why people like bourbon. That <laughs> sweetness and everything at the end is why people like it. Yeah, yeah, but it's not. It's at the same time, it's not a big caramel bomb. Like it's it's no. subtle with the sweetness. Yeah. Mm. And interestingly, no no age statement here, so we don't we're not playing that game with this one uh, with this. Uh, no, bourbon. they're not. And I think. You know, what's also interesting is this definitely becomes more of their collector's bourbon. I mean, look, we'll see if they they convince, you know, the brand to do a more mixology focused one, uh, but our cocktail focused one. But this is definitely a sipping bourbon. And again, they have those those with wild turkey. Right. So they almost don't need to have like the mixologist, you know, the, 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 the bartender. Yeah, yeah th- this is another collector bourbon. This is, you know, people who want to have a bottle of bourbon and have a glass of bourbon at the end of the night. This is that bourbon. Mm-hmm. Cool. Let us know what you think. If you've had Wilderness Trail before, hit us up at podcastofimpair.com. If you've never heard of Wilderness Trail before, you should have because it was Next Wave's, uh, you know, <laughs> Spirit's Brand of the Year or last if you year. Have any other bourbon brands that you think were, they're going to be acquired? Yeah, next. let us know who you think is going to get bought next. We always love to play that game. Yeah. And, uh, I'll talk to you both on Monday. Have great weekends. Have a great weekend. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, However you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire Vine Pair staff and everyone who's been involved in making Vine Pair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.